Lord, we do thank you for your word. And so as we come to it now, we pray that you would help us. We want to understand it rightly. We want to apply it faithfully. And so I pray that you would help me to be clear, and I pray that you would help all of us to be attentive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Kadesh Barnea, you might say the Kadesh Barnea debacle. Many of you are familiar with that episode in Israel's history, recounted in the book of Numbers, verses thir- chapters 13 and 14. Israel's on the edge of the southern border to the promised land, ready to enter in and to take the land that the Lord has promised to them and commanded them to go in and take. They've just been miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt only a couple years prior. Not only were they delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they were specifically delivered for the purpose of bringing them to the land the Lord had promised to give to them centuries prior. And as they're there on the border, getting ready to go in, Moses chooses 12 men as spies to send in and gather intel, one man from each of the 12 tribes. And as these men go in, what do they discover? They discover that the land is everything the Lord has promised it would be. It's a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that is just full of agricultural abundance. But it's also a land where the inhabitants are large, strong, giants. And the cities are well fortified with high walls. And for this reason, the ten ten of the twelve spies, they advise Israel... Listen, this is what we saw. Let's not go in. We shouldn't be going in and taking this land. Uh, This is not the time for that. And they convinced Israel to not attempt it. Now, if it weren't for our distance from the situation, if it weren't for the fact that we know how this story turns out, we might be tempted to sympathize with those ten spies. The reasoning might go something like this. Yes, The Lord both promised the land and commanded us to go in and take it. But maybe this isn't quite the Lord's timing. The giants, the high walls, clearly those are closed doors. Whatever we might think the Lord said, he certainly didn't mean for us to go up against those people. After all, The Lord gave us brains, and the Lord expects us to think for ourselves. And we know he doesn't want us to go, at least not now, because, well, that would contradict other instructions he's given us. Like our need to protect and provide for our wives and children, which we certainly wouldn't be doing if we irrationally went up against these people for whom we are no match. We would all die, and then what would become of God's promises to make us a great nation. Clearly, they might conclude, this is not what the Lord meant. Now, if we put ourselves, if we could put ourselves in their shoes, I think we might find that much of their rationale isn't all that foreign to the kinds of things that go through our own minds. We can understand the temptation to go off script, to modify God's instructions in light of circumstances. 
But the Lord found none of their rationalizations for disobedience to be legitimate. The Lord had given clear instructions, and the Lord expected them to simply trust him and obey. He is, after all, the one who created all things and providentially upholds all things. Surely he can take care of some battles. The temptation to improvise on God's instructions is rooted in our insistence that God's instructions must seem reasonable to us if we're going to obey them. And if they don't seem reasonable to us, surely they aren't reasonable, and therefore, surely God doesn't expect us to obey them. Now, if we fast forward 40 years from the episode at Kadesh Barnea and look back, we realize their calculations could not have taken into account the possibility that the Jordan River would simply be divided before them as they cross over. Nor could their calculations ever have taken into consideration the possibility that as they're approaching these high walls, they might just topple before them. They couldn't have anticipated those things. But they didn't need to anticipate any of those things. They only needed to trust the Lord and obey him. What Israel did at Kadesh Barnea was nothing short of grave unbelief and disobedience. And as a result, that whole generation was not able to see this wonderful land that the Lord had promised to them. They were excluded from the experience, from the enjoyment, from participation in the Lord's promises, and they were left to die in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. And we're tempted to do the same. For us, the details might look a bit different, but the substance is essentially the same. We're tempted to go off script. We're tempted to improvise on God's instructions in light of what seems reasonable to us or in light of what our circumstances seem to require at this time. And in Genesis chapter 22, Moses, in writing the book of Genesis, provides for that wilderness generation an example of trusting obedience to try to help them and us avoid that very kind of mistake, the kind of mistake Israel made at Kadesh Barnea, an example of trusting obedience in trying circumstances, even baffling circumstances, circumstances that tempt us to improvise, to go off script. So take a look at Genesis 22. Let me just read it one more time for us to make sure we have it before us. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire 
and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we can divide this text into four stages, four stages in a compelling example of trusting obedience in trying circumstances. And all of those points will be up there. I'll run through them quickly here at the front end, but you don't have to write quickly because they will be left up there the whole time. Number one, the first stage, trusting obedience is tested. Second stage, trusting obedience is demonstrated. Third stage, trusting obedience is vindicated. And finally, trusting obedience is blessed. So beginning in verses one and two, we see the test laid out. Abraham is told to go and sacrifice his son. What a test that is. But if we're going to apply this well, we need to understand what it is that made that difficult. What made these instructions, this command, so difficult in such a test? What made it baffling and confusing for Abraham? We need to understand that the command wasn't given in our own context. It was given in this context and understand it there. Because only when we've understood it in its own context that we'll be able to faithfully apply it to ourselves. So is the difficulty found in Abraham's love for Isaac? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. So yes, in part, Abraham's paternal affection for his son is one part of what makes the command difficult. But it's the minor part. The primary reason this command is so difficult for Abraham, baffling, is that it seems to directly oppose the very things God has promised, the very way he has planned to fulfill his purposes. To get this context of these promises, we could simply go back to Genesis 21, verse 12, where God says to Abraham, 
Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And observe that if Abraham sacrifices Isaac, that will seem to create a problem for God in terms of fulfilling his promise. But that wouldn't exactly be doing the text justice to simply point you to that one verse, because Moses has been developing this promise to Abraham for all of the first part of Genesis. And as he's been developing the significance, the weight as we come to chapter 22 is greater than we would realize if we just look at that one verse. And this promise, just so we feel the weight of it, isn't limited in terms of its significance simply to one family on the face of the earth, as though this was something for Abraham and his descendants, but had no relevance to their neighbors. No, it was, the goal was that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. It had relevance for the whole world over. And not only was it limited, not limited in that way geographically, it wasn't limited historically. It wasn't just for the people in Abraham's time or the people in the ancient world more broadly. These promises had relevance for people of all time. And as Moses has been developing the significance of this promise, he has shown that these grand promises will be channeled through, uh, through Abraham's son, Isaac. So let's back up and get that context. As the Lord creates the earth, he does so with the purpose of filling creation with his image bearers. Image bearers who will dwell in his relational presence and who will rule over creation on his behalf. And that purpose includes that they will dwell in a garden, a unique place where God's relational presence is uniquely manifested, uniquely experienced, that they will multiply themselves, and that as they are multiplying, they will extend the boundaries of that garden so that God's relational presence and his blessings are experienced all over the earth. The prophets anticipated this with things like statements like, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Abraham's given a particular land, sorry, Adam. Adam is given a particular land where God dwells in his midst, where he is blessed, where he is to multiply, and from which he is to extend blessing to all the earth. But that all goes terribly wrong as Adam and Eve refuse to trust and obey. Rather, they insist on judging for themselves whether it's a good idea to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decide they want to be autonomous discerners. They insist on judging right and wrong, good and evil for themselves. They won't trust the Lord. They will follow his instructions only if those instructions seem right in their own eyes. And everything goes downhill. It must. For the whole arrangement centers on God's relational presence from which all of those blessings flow, and that relational presence cannot be maintained when humans are refusing to trust him, when humans refuse to submit to him, when they refuse to embrace their creaturely dependence in relation to him. And as a result, the punishments directly oppose that plan. Rather than being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, conception is made difficult. Childbirth is made 
painful and hazardous. Rather than easy and smooth cultivation of the ground, the ground is cursed. And cultivation of the ground is impeded. Its fruitfulness is impeded. And rather than receiving blessing while dwelling in God's relational presence, they are exiled from the garden and barred from that presence and from its blessings. So the whole plan seems to be ruined. But there's hope. There's hope in this expectation for a future descendant of Adam and Eve who will defeat all that opposes God's purposes in people and will open the way for God to consummate his plan for creation. And this expectation for a future descendant is then traced through a genealogy, first to Noah and then to Abraham. And so that, that hope that we found for the problems created through that initial rebellion have led us to Abraham. And beginning in chapter 12, these promises are given to Abraham. Promises specifically to bless Abraham and through blessing Abraham to bless all nations. Some of the specific ways God promises to bless Abraham are to give him a land, a land that will flow with milk and honey, a land that will be agriculturally productive. We might say it's a land that's characterized by Edenic qualities. He's also promised a multitude of descendants. And in this way, by promising to bless Abraham in these ways, and through Abraham to bless all nations, Abraham is aligned with Adam. God is purposing to overcome the results of human rebellion and to restore and complete his purposes for creation through Abraham and his seed. You see, just as Adam was placed in a particular area, the garden, where God dwelt in his midst and where he enjoyed God's relational presence and all of the blessings that attend that, so also Abraham and his descendants are promised a land where God will dwell in their midst and where they will be blessed by the Lord. Just as Adam was to multiply, so Abraham is promised that he will have a multitude of descendants. And just as Adam was to extend the blessings of the garden to the whole earth, so also Abraham is promised that through him all the earth will be blessed. And it's through Abraham and his seed that this future descendant who will crush evil will come. And so it's for these reasons that we can say the promises to Abraham are not limited in relevance to him and to his descendants or to ancient history, but in these promises is found the hope of all creation for all time. But Abraham and Sarah, this couple to whom have been given these promises of a multitude of descendants and that among their descendants will be this future deliverer, that couple is barren. God's plan to rescue his creation is going to come through the descendants of a barren couple. And years pass while the Lord continues to reiterate his promises to Abraham, but still no child. In chapter 15, Abraham tries to help the situation along and proposes to God that maybe his servant Eleazar could be suitable. And God says, no, it's going to be a biological descendant of yours. So then in chapter 16, Sarah says, okay, well, we can, we can make that work. It can be a biological descendant of yours, but why don't you take my, my servant here, Hagar, 
and have a, have a child with her. So they try that. But then in chapter 17, God says, no, it's going to be a biological child of both Abraham and Sarah. And furthermore, he goes to name that descendant. His name will be Isaac. And then finally, in chapter 21, after 25 years of waiting to see even one child come to this, this couple, finally, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And we as the reader, we can finally breathe a sigh of relief. God's promises will be vindicated after all. And then we come to chapter 22, where God himself threatens his own promises by commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Not only does Abraham not have any other son who could function in place of Isaac, but a substitute wouldn't even work because the child through whom these promises will come has already been named. It is Isaac. So this is truly a baffling command. It's hard to imagine a command that would more directly oppose God's promises and his plan as he's revealed it. So I began this review of the context by asking what it is that makes the command so difficult, so baffling. And so we set out to understand that from the context. And from the context, it's clear that the difficulty in the command is that the command itself threatens to foil God's purpose. It threatens to keep God from fulfilling his own promises, making him a liar, and terminating his plan to redeem his creation. So this is perplexing, and the stakes are high. The temptation to go off script, the temptation to improvise, just leaps off the page. It's palpable. Surely God didn't mean what he said. Surely the instructions don't have to be obeyed. They don't make any rational sense. But what does Abraham do? In verses 3 through 10, we come to the second stage in this example of trusting obedience in trying circumstances. And that second stage is trusting obedience is demonstrated. Trusting obedience is demonstrated. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The narrative doesn't record any contemplation on Abraham's part. There's no delay. Abraham rises early, it says, makes preparations, and departs. We wonder what Abraham's thinking at this point. 
how he might be working the angles of possibility in his mind, how he might be able to obey and God still keep his promises. But there's no indication that Abraham is consumed with trying to work this out. Quite frankly, not only is the question of how God is going to work it all out beside the point, doesn't really matter, not only that, but it may even be evidence of unbelief, evidence of discontentment with simply trusting the Lord, and rather insisting upon understanding for oneself how it will all work out, requiring that it make rational sense to us. In essence, saying, it isn't good enough that God will work it all out. I have to know how. And the implication there is, because I'm not willing to trust it to him. And apparently it wasn't so with Abraham. One writer, F.F. Bruce, writes this, The impression which we get from the biblical narrative is that Abraham treated it as God's problem. It was for God and not for Abraham to reconcile his promise and his command. So when the command was given, Abraham promptly set about obeying it. His own duty was clear, and God could safely be trusted to discharge his responsibility in the matter. This reminds me of uh, a passage that Joel James preached last Saturday, uh, yeah, last Saturday, a week ago, at the conference from Psalm 131. There are things the Lord expects of us, and there are a whole lot of things he doesn't expect of us. And it's often when we insist on involving ourselves in those things the Lord hasn't commanded of us that we find ourselves overwhelmed. We find ourselves uh, with anxiety, worrying. And involving ourselves in those things that the Lord doesn't expect of us not only tempts us to anxiety, but often, ironically, we end up neglecting the very things he has asked of us. We must learn to be content with our own task list and not find ourselves always trying to take things from the Lord's task list and migrate them to our own. He has promised us the resources we need for all he expects of us, but he hasn't promised us the resources we would need to do his tasks for him. So we must discipline ourselves to give our attention to the things the Lord has commanded and to trust him with the rest. And that is what Abraham is doing here. How God will work it all out is God's business. Abraham just knows that he needs to do what the Lord has commanded him to do. And in verse 9, the narrative begins to slow down as it nears the anticipated moment. Just notice that in verse 9 there. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac laid him on the altar, on top of the wood, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So Moses is slowing down the narrative here to build suspense. But as the suspense is building for us, all we see in Abraham is just steady obedience. He doesn't know how God will work it all out. He doesn't need to. He just needs to trust the Lord, and obey. And then with verse 11, we move to the third stage. Trusting, 
obedience is vindicated. Trusting obedience is vindicated. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Abraham didn't know how God would work it all out. He didn't know how God would maintain his promises if he obeyed the Lord, but he trusted the Lord with that and simply obeyed. And now it's seen how the Lord works all that out. At the last moment, he stops Abraham, and he provides this ram in place of Isaac. In verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. But notice that's the very same thing that Abraham had said while he was still, we might say, in the fog of the trial before all of the confusion had been cleared up, before the baffling circumstances had been resolved. Back in verse 8, when Isaac asked him why they didn't have a lamb for the sacrifice, Abraham said, God will provide. There's a steady consistency here in Abraham in the midst of the trial and after the trial. He just continues to trust the Lord. For some of us, after the trial is all over, we're saying, oh, the Lord is so good. He works all things together for good. Isn't he faithful? But that's not what we were saying earlier in the midst of the trial. We were wringing our hands, racked with anxiety, discontent, obviously not trusting the Lord. Contrary to what we're saying afterward in the midst of the trial, we are practically with our behavior saying that he's not good. We're refusing to believe that he works all things together for good. We're denying that he is faithful. When we consider that, Abraham's steady consistency is just remarkable. He's the same before, he's the same after, he's just trusting the Lord, and it doesn't really matter whether he knows how the Lord's going to work things out or not. He doesn't need to know. It's good enough to trust that the Lord has those things under control. And in that way, Abraham provides for us an example of steady obedience. And then finally, we come to the fourth stage. Trusting obedience is blessed. Trusting obedience is blessed. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's a lot that could be said about these verses. There's a lot that could be said in terms of 
the covenant and what the Lord is hereby swearing, promising to Abraham. There's a lot that could be said about the way this works out in terms of God's plan for salvation through history. But this morning, I simply want us to note that the very promises that seem to be threatened if Abraham obeyed are actually reaffirmed and carried forward because of his obedience. The very promises that seem to be threatened if Abraham obeyed are actually carried forward and reaffirmed because of his obedience. Notice that this reiteration of God's promises to Abraham are bracketed by references to his obedience. In verse 16, we read, And the angel of the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and the promises go on, but directly linking it to his obedience. And then at the end, verse 18, we read, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. On the front end of the trial, obedience seems to threaten the promise. But on the back end, we discover that Abraham's obedience actually contributes to the fulfillment of the promises. We simply don't know the details for how God will work out all of his purposes, how God will work out all that he has planned. Yes, we can know the broad general outlines of what his plans are. He's revealed those things to us in his word. But we don't know the details, and we don't need to know the details. We simply need to be steadfast in obedience to what he's instructed us, what he's commanded us to do. And we can be confident that he will use our obedience to accomplish his purposes, even when we can't fathom how. In our own lives, the temptation to set aside God's instructions can be just as real. Surely they don't always look exactly the same, but the essence of it is there. And surely there are all kinds of reasons why we're tempted to disobey. But I have in mind particularly those kinds that, that come with a pious veneer, that seem to be because of a concern, maybe even well-intended concern for God and his glory, as was the case with Abraham and his concern that God keep his promises. So here's one, one way it might look in our own lives, starting out a bit generically. We are often tempted to leave behind our ordinary responsibilities as believers because of what we perceive to be our extraordinary circumstances. We begin to revise our responsibilities because we think that's going to be necessary to help God out. It might go something like this. Yes, God said that, but think about what will happen if we obey. Surely God won't want that. Maybe, maybe you've sinned against your employer. And you know what you need to do. You know you need to go and confess that to him and seek his forgiveness and make restitution. But then you start thinking, well, everyone at work knows I'm a Christian. And if I tell them what I've done, then, you know, what are they going to think of Christ? That'll make Christians look bad. What will that do to, to my witness? Surely God doesn't want, want that. 
But again, Abraham's example is a wonderful model for us. We simply obey, and we trust the Lord with the outcome, to take care of the rest. Here's another. Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow him. With all that means in terms of sacrifice and even danger. And yet, husbands and fathers might justify self-preserving behavior with the explanation that God expects them to care for their family, and therefore they have every excuse for self-preserving behavior to avoid any kind of danger in the name of following Christ. And suddenly, the command to take up our cross and follow Christ has been totally neutralized and set aside, seemingly with a pious veneer. Or, the same concern to provide for our families could lead us to ethical compromise in the workplace because, well, we've got to continue to provide for them. We can't give up that income. A mother might improvise on God's instructions for raising and disciplining her child because she's fearful that her child might grow up to dislike her if she follows through with God's instructions for, for discipline. She would rather her child be her friend rather than risk that friendship by stepping in the way and correcting that, that headlong path to destruction that children naturally take unless they are corrected. The ways in which these trying circumstances can tempt us to disobedience, to go off script, are innumerable. And we could go on thinking of the various situations that might be in your life, but we don't need to. The basic principle is that we need to trust the Lord, even when we can't anticipate all of the ways this might surface. We simply need to trust the Lord and obey him. Now, if you're sitting here feeling a bit discouraged, looking at this example and saying, wow, that certainly has not characterized my life. My, my trust in the Lord certainly hasn't quite looked like Abraham's. Well, for one thing, guard your heart against wallowing in self-pity and observe that not every prior scene in Abraham's life looked like this. There were plenty of scenes that looked a bit different, where he wasn't trusting the Lord, where he was lying to be able to protect himself and to protect God's promises. But what we learn from that is that our prior failures to trust the Lord and to act in those ways doesn't have to define us forever. Those past infamous moments in Abraham's life were in the past. He grew, and he acted with trust and obedience, as we see here. And if you are in Christ, you have the ability and the imperative to grow in trusting the Lord. You're not constrained by your past failures to trust. On Tuesday morning, Joel James was teaching the men at Grace and Granite and what he was teaching reminded me of this text. It was related to this theme. And he made this statement. When everything changes, nothing changes. When everything changes, nothing changes. And what he meant by that is, even though everything about our circumstances might change, what we ought to do, what God expects of us, doesn't change. In the midst of extraordinary circumstances, usually we just need ordinary faithfulness, being steady, trusting the Lord, 
obeying him. Our circumstances aren't outside of anything God could have anticipated or expected. Surely if those who are giving instructions don't know all the, all the contingencies, all the possibilities, then we might have some legitimate reason to call an audible, to change things up at the last moment, because, well, this situation couldn't have been anticipated. But it's not so with God. And when he gives us instructions, we don't have to be surprised by what we see on the headlines. We don't have to be surprised about what people expect is coming in the future. God has told us exactly what we are to do. We've got plenty of instructions throughout the scriptures, and we just need to keep our hands on the plow, keep our head down, and continue faithful with what he has commanded us to do, knowing that he will fulfill his purposes through that faithful, steady, ordinary obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for working through Moses to inspire this example for Israel and for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, even as we think about that second generation in the wilderness, who having this instruction under Joshua's leadership didn't make the same mistake their parents did at Kadesh Barnea, but rather trusted you and went in and took the land. And Lord, we we know that our lives are similar. Our lives are not perfect track records of simply obeying you and trusting you to take care of the rest, but they are characterized by ups and downs, by sometimes improvising a bit, sometimes going off script, and yet this example stands before us, calling us back to what you would have us to do. And so I pray, Lord, I know that the types of temptations vary uh, throughout this room, and yet I pray that you would help us to have the wisdom we need and just the, the trust in you we need to be able to follow through in obeying you, regardless of the circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.